If you feel like your business is drowning in inefficiencies, it might be time to decode the problem and break it down by the numbers. Let's start with 37,000. That's the vast community of business owners who've embraced NetSuite. 25, that's the number of years that NetSuite has been revolutionizing financial workflows and accelerating success. Which brings us to one. NetSuite offers tailored solutions, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Unlock the power of NetSuite today. Download our acclaimed KPI checklist for free. Just head to netsuite.com slash cbs. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Jane Polly is off this weekend. I'm Lee Cowan. We've all heard the folk wisdom that when it comes to romance, opposites attract, almost to the point of suggesting that the attraction is automatic and guaranteed. Well, not necessarily, at least not when one of the parties is of a personality type that is widely misunderstood. Faith Saley will report our cover story. Think fast and speak up. Some of the keys to success, so we've been told, but things might be about to change. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where people are shushing extroverts at the conference table? I could see it honestly being like a revenge of the introverts. Shh. There's a quiet revolution going on. We'll tell you more later on Sunday morning. Leave Him Laughing is a specialty of comedian Louis Anderson. This morning, he'll be telling us just how he does it. And the, the rouge makes a big difference. Comedian Louis Anderson is in the middle of what he calls getting a brand new coat of paint. That and a brilliantly colored moo-moo, and it's almost impossible to recognize him in drag. To Coney Island. That's the problem with that one. I would have done it earlier had I known the clothes were so comfortable. <laughs> would you really? <laughs> yeah, because I'm tired of being lowered into pants. <laughs> Why, a 65-year-old man is fast becoming TV's new favorite mom. What? Ahead on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more just ahead. Opposites attract, or so we've been told. In reality, however, it is not so simple. Our cover story is reported by Faith Saley. Okay, ready, go. When Brian Baker first laid eyes on Randy Johns, oh, there he goes again. In Sacramento, California, two years ago, it was love at first sight. <laughs> I was like, who is that? I would like to meet her. Yeah, that happened pretty much like that. We'd like to tell you it was a match made in heaven, but. It felt like we were communicating on different levels, like completely. A lot of times we were talking at each other, and she was probably doing a better job of listening than I was. You're all saggy. While all couples have their ups and downs, for Randy, their problems seemed insurmountable. I felt sort of exhausted from just being in a relationship. Being in a relationship at all, or in a relationship with Brian? Um, in a relationship with Brian. Um, My personality is high energy and in your face, but it also tends to be impulsive 
Randy told Brian she needed space. If he sees a problem, he immediately like attacks it. And I was like, just stop. So they split up. It all boiled down to a clash of personality. I am far in the extrovert camp, yeah. And where are you on that scale? I always considered myself an introvert. Understanding personality types can get complicated. Simply put, extroverts tend to be charismatic, while introverts are quiet types. Extroverts are hailed as good talkers. Introverts, on the other hand, are usually the ones listening. While extroverts recharge their batteries through interaction with others, introverts re-energize when they're alone. Introverts contribute so much to society because of who they are, not in spite of who they are. Author Susan Cain wrote a bestseller that struck a chord by bringing attention to the oft-misunderstood introvert. A third to a half of the population are introverts. The book's success led to a TED Talk speech, which today has over 19 million YouTube hits. Now Kane leads a movement she calls the Quiet Revolution. Why do we need a revolution? You have this huge percentage of the population who are subtly discounted for something that goes to the core of who they are. Kane says there's some history behind that. You talk about moving from a culture of character to personality. Yeah, the culture of character was in the 19th century when we lived in small towns alongside people that you've pretty much known all your life. And so people could judge each other in terms of who the other person really was. But then in the 20th century, when you had industrialization and people moving out into the cities, and suddenly they're living alongside strangers who they needed to impress really quickly. What became important was what kind of a first impression do you make? So in a culture that's long favored the charisma and likability of the extrovert, the introvert has been left on the sidelines. If you went through the thousands and thousands of letters that I get, the word you would see most frequently is the word permission. Finally, I have permission to be who I am. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where people are, you know, shushing extroverts at the conference table? I could see it actually honestly being like a revenge of the introverts. Author and psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's made a career of studying creative intelligence and personality traits. One of the most exciting findings in modern personality science is that all of our personality traits can change. Let's say we're an extrovert and our work environment is surrounded by introverts. Actually, the extroverted tend to become more introverted, and vice versa. What are the biggest myths about introverts? That they don't like people. The other myth is the idea that introverts don't make good leaders. And there's actually data showing that introverted leaders often deliver even better outcomes than extroverted leaders do. Whether it occurs by the quirk of nature... Leaders like Microsoft's Bill Gates, billionaire investor Warren Buffett, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, former Avon CEO Andrea Jung, all self-proclaimed introverts. As for the extroverts, Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg says she's one. So do Bill Clinton, George Bush, and founder of black entertainment television Robert Johnson. The main difference is style. Extroverted leaders are strong motivators, quick on their feet. Introverted leaders prefer to think things through before speaking up or moving forward, which is often misconstrued for shyness, even disinterest. When 
introverts aren't supported, what do we miss out on? We're missing out on, well, on half the population to begin with. Introverts tend to be passed over or not groomed in the first place for leadership positions. And that's one of the things that we really want to fix. How many of you would describe yourselves, let's say, as extroverts first? That's why Kane has taken her show on the road, speaking to students and business leaders about how to bring the best out of their introverts. It's not like it's one is better than the other. It's just that they're different, and we really need them both. And, says Scott Barry Kaufman, this is true in most aspects of our lives. What about in, in personal relationships? Over the long haul, both partners do tend to kind of meet each other in the middle somewhere. But at kind of the earliest stages of relationships, you can have like a very extrovert part, a very introvert part, and they can make a really great match because they are seeing something in each other that they don't have. Brian and Randy may have learned that the hard way. When she broke up with me, like that was a huge moment in my life where I, I, I said, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I don't want this to end. Lo and behold, one of Susan Cain's speaking tours brought her to Brian's workplace, where he had the opportunity to share how her book changed his life. As I was reading, I was like, oh my God, this is why, this is why we're talking at each other and not to each other. Like, I need to listen to her. I need to shut up and let her talk. This wasn't just a journey of understanding for Brian. Good boy. Randy had her own awakening during their split, especially when Brian told her he was moving to Seattle to start a new job. And then suddenly it hit me and I was like, whoa, he just gave me the ultimate, I guess, space. Space, yeah. I just like fell apart and like saw all of these other things that like he contributed to my life and like brought out in me. And that's how opposites can move beyond mere attraction. Just because Randy's introverted doesn't mean she's shy or timid. I mean, she's strong and courageous and in some, in some respects fearless. Shortly after our interview, Brian asked Randy to marry him. She said yes. This time he heard her loud and clear. War and its masses. War and its men. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. July 8th, 1950. 68 years ago today. The day President Harry S. Truman named General Douglas MacArthur commander of U.S. and Allied forces in Korea. Communist North Korea had attacked the South just a few weeks before. Within months of taking command, MacArthur, a World War II hero, had halted and outflanked the North Korean invaders, driving them back to the border with China. China, in turn, launched an attack of its own, forcing the U.S.-led coalition to fall back. MacArthur lobbied President Truman for permission to bomb China. Truman, fearing a wider war, refused. And in April of 1951, he fired MacArthur for insubordination, a controversial move that stunned the nation. Upon returning to the U.S., MacArthur delivered a farewell address to Congress, invoking words from a British war song. But old soldiers never die. They just fade away. General Douglas MacArthur died in 1964, at the age of 84. As for the Korean War, it ended not with a full-fledged peace treaty, but an armistice in 1953. And Korea has remained divided and in the headlines to this day.
Comedian Louis Anderson certainly knows how to leave him laughing. And as I discovered, one of the keys to his success is his ability to laugh at himself. There's one thing comedian Louis Anderson always sets straight from the get-go. Got a Fitbit. He knows he's overweight. He knows you're probably going to laugh about it. So he cracks the jokes before you do. Don't you hate the Fitbit friend you have? That when you go 4,000, they go 20,000. And you think to yourself, I got to put this on the dog again. One day I was folding my underwear, and I held them up, and I went, oh my god, these are big. <laughs> I had no idea. Because when you're putting them on, you're not thinking, these are big underwear. But when they're out in front of you and they block the sun, <laughs> they... <laughs> I was shocked at how big my underwear were. So I just quit wearing underwear. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Would you welcome, please, Louis Anderson. Louis! He's been poking fun at his weight ever since his debut on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, way back in 1984. I can't stay long. I'm in between meals, so bear with me. <laughs> Such a good joke. You know, I have a new joke that I, I just love. I go, I just had my uh, ancestry done. I'm 20% uh, Norwegian and 80% butter. <laughs> From the Land of Lakes tribe. <laughs> you know, those are such good jokes. As much as you were doing those fat jokes, and as much as you wanted people to laugh at them, that it, it hurt a little bit, too, that they did laugh. Yeah, it did. It did hurt. The laughs have always come before his personal pain, and there has been a lot of it. Anderson grew up the 10th of 11 children in a housing project in St. Paul, Minnesota. A sweet and sour stew, he calls it. His mom was sweet, his dad, an abusive alcoholic, was sour. And eating for me is like my dad's drinking. Yes, dad's he drinking. makes fun of that, too. Even when he was out, like sometimes my dad would be so out, my mom would go, check to see if he's breathing. i go, you check to see if he's breathing. <laughs> not really concerned. <laughs> I don't do this just for the laughs. No way. It's healing? I think it's healing, and, but more than that, people don't feel so alone. If people know that I had the you know, my butt kicked and my dad was cruel to me. If they know that I did and I'm still going, maybe they can keep going. What's he yelling about? His humor wasn't only revealing, it was also clean. Did your mom ever do this? Point out things that make no sense to you? <laughs> Shirley's daughter works in that building. Mining his own family for material was always his secret. And yet he says it's his current role that hits the closest to home. I just want Chip to be happy. That's all I've ever wanted. Yes, that's Anderson, playing Zach Galifianakis's mother on the FX series Baskets. I'm here. This is no joke, he says. He takes the part of Christine Baskets very seriously. All right. This is the last time you'll see Louis Anderson. I'm leaving him in here. We followed him into that makeup trailer and for the next two hours watched Louis Anderson transform. He went from the self-deprecating gap-tooth comic most of us know she is. to a not-so-bad-looking middle-aged woman that he Thank says he recognized right away. It's amazing. Look at this. Same thing here. 
Yeah. Cool. Cheeks and everything exactly the same. You're definitely her son. <laughs> I'm definitely her, her brood, right? <laughs> yeah. His mom, Aura Zella Anderson, passed away nearly three decades ago. And yet, for the last three seasons, Louis Anderson says he's been channeling her. Once in costume, he prefers no one call him Louis on set. He is pretty convincing as a molly-cuddling mom, even in person when you know it's him. Do you feel different? <laughs> that was, your collar was a little. Thank you. I want you to forget that Louis Anderson is playing Christine Baskets. You do, at least I do. That's what I want. Ah. Oh, I like that. This is a blanket. People say, what do you want to do next? I go, well, I just hope I can play a man again. <laughs> Be Mark. Hey, Mom, I'm going to fix this horse there. You're going to want to it was Galifianakis, one of the show's co-creators, who cast Anderson as his mom and put him in a dress. Do whatever you want, but why don't you try out the new headrest? You know, it's, it's hard to have your own show and not be the most popular one. <laughs> but I'm fine with it. You know, it's, I like it, actually. The lovable, fallible, and always motherly Christine Baskets was a hit. Anderson took home a primetime Emmy for the first season and was nominated for a second one last year. It's a great part. Christine Baskets is every woman. There's a whole bunch of Christine Baskets in the world, and nobody's represented them, and I am. He has no other way to explain his success in the role other than he believes his long-suffering mom must be right there with him. Because, you know, that character is, you know, I steal all her nuance and all her, mm, those little looks and <sighs> her disapproving stuff. She's back in a lot of ways, right? You know, she's got the starring role that she deserves. Played by none other than her son. Yeah. I mean, you know, the great thing about my mom was she protected us. She took all the brunt. And this is such a great um, repay and tribute. I get to pay her back. <laughs> He just finished writing his late mom a series of letters that he's compiled into a book, recounting all she's missed since she passed and how her spirit is still making a difference. It's her humanity and her love that I think people are connecting to. His mom, however, wouldn't want him to give up his stand-up, he says. So that explains why we found him backstage at this comedy club, going over index cards full of brand new material. Jokes that Louis Anderson still makes at no one's expense but his. Do you know what I really would love? If they completely forgot their troubles for one second. Completely. No matter what or how big the trouble was. If they, if they could just forget it for one second, that would be worth it. I love you guys. I love you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Before there were podcasts, there was television. Remember? See what's new under the sun every Sunday morning. Steve Hartman has found a young athlete ready and willing to go the extra length.
They were the bad news bears of swimming. Y'all are in two minutes. In fact, Coach Alex Wiedemann yeah. of Seguin High School in Arlington, Texas, says you can't overstate their underachievement. Our goal every meet was to finish the race. Just get across the pool? Get across the pool. Really, we measured our success on not getting disqualified. And because that was the standard, four years ago, Gerald Hodges made the team, perhaps the only kid to ever make a high school swim team without a clue how to swim. We had to get anybody. It the didn't matter. He couldn't know how to swim. He couldn't get across five yards, let alone 25 yards. Was there really nobody better? No. <laughs> Come on, Gerald. Come on, Gerald. Eventually, he at least learned how to not drown and even finished some races, albeit long after the other competitors were done and toweled off. Push it, come on. Yes, he was that bad, which is interesting, oh. because on dry land, Gerald is a remarkable athlete. Could you have made the basketball team? I think so. Could you have made the football team? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Soccer team? Pretty positive. <laughs> so why swimming? I felt like if I couldn't handle not being good at something, then how could I consider myself you know, a successful person? That quote bears repeating. If I couldn't handle not being good at something, then how could I consider myself a successful person? To Gerald, setting yourself up for failure is actually the key to future success, especially if you can somehow manage to master your weakness. And by the start of his senior year, Gerald had actually improved a lot. But no one really knew how much he'd improved until a big regional meet earlier this year. It was the 200-yard medley relay. Top two teams qualify for state. And as usual, Seguin was pretty much in last place with 50 yards to go. And that's when Gerald jumped in the water. Keep in mind, at this level, making up any significant time is nearly impossible. Unless maybe you've got something to prove. Unless, maybe, there's an extra drive deep within anyone who knows what it's like to be dismissed. Whatever it was, the kid who couldn't swim just sent his team to state. Man, we was ecstatic. I could barely contain my energy as I was trying to go get this medal. I'm sitting here just freaking out. You're like, having a hard time now. Yes, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I was like, I've come so far. <laughs> From now on, whenever you think anything is impossible, think of Gerald. Whenever you think the easiest path is the best, think again. Coming soon, Mobituaries, a podcast on matters of death and life from Mo Rocca. This past week, the Federal Aviation Administration washed its hands of responsibility for the ever more tightly packed airplane seats. In this busy summer travel season, our Lou Burbank says there's something we all can do to ease airplane overcrowding. I was on a flight recently when something very unfortunate happened. A tall, tall man sat right in front of me, and I knew it was only a matter of time before he would be committing that unspeakable act of reclining his seat. Now, years ago, this wouldn't have been such a big deal. Flying was a civilized event. The airlines gave us room to stretch out. People wore suits. Hell, they even let you smoke. But these days, things have changed. They've shrunk our personal passenger space down to the point where you need to slather yourself up in Crisco just to wedge into your seat. And forget about choosing exactly where that seat will be. 
The way it works these days is you buy the ticket and then they tell you it's another $100 if you want to actually be inside the airplane. Anyway, as our flight took off, I braced for impact. The impact of the seat in front of me hitting my knees. But when we reached cruising altitude, something amazing happened. Nothing. By which, I mean this very tall man in front of me decided not to recline his seat. It was a random act of kindness, and one that stayed with me to this day. It also got me thinking, why do we recline our seats on the plane? It's not like it makes that much of a difference. Here's me sitting straight, and here's me reclined. Reclining your seat improves your experience by 1% and ruins the experience of the person behind you by 99%. Economists call this trade-off being a jerk. I say it's time for a national movement. I know, another one. Just hear me out. If we all agree not to lean our seats back, we can make the world, at least the world of air travel, a slightly better place. I'm calling it the decline to recline movement. We're gonna have t-shirts and everything. We were gonna have buttons, but they don't let those through security anymore. Don't get me started. Anyway, next time you're on a plane and you're about to recline your seat, think about the person behind you and practice a little kindness. You never know. One day, the knees you save may be your own. Ladies and gentlemen, it will shortly be landing at London. Can we ask you please to return to your seat now? Fruits and vegetables straight from the farm make for a welcome taste of summer. Turns out they can also make for a pretty successful restaurant, as our Connor Knighton discovered. So what all is growing here? Uh, so we've got an Asian green mix over here. Those will be going into stir fries and different uh, salads and, and whatnot. And we've got radishes here. The farm to table movement is mostly about knowing where your food comes from. I mean, this guy's huge. Yeah, so this is a great example of um, what would end up in our kimchi at the restaurant. Chef Ben Biebenroth has it down to the tenth of a mile. From this farm to that table at the restaurant, how far is that? 20.9 miles. Hey, it sounds like a drive you've made a few times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey that began at Biebenroth's Spice Kitchen, a hip upscale restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, where colorful pickle boards and dishes like watermelon terrine highlight local ingredients. The halibut is served on a base of couscous compesto. Compesto is a pesto made from a lot of the vegetable trimmings that would end up in a compost bucket. Carrot tops, parsley stems. So you're really using everything from the farm? As much as we can, yeah. It's a shame to see something that you've touched so many times end up in a bucket. And this one will be a little bit green still. As if running a restaurant wasn't hard enough, this ex-Marine with a culinary school background decided to try growing the food himself. He moved his wife and two young children onto 13 acres. This is their farm. Technically, it's our farm. This is all government soil. The Biebenroths moved out of the city and in to a national park. This was just one of the, the many hundreds of farms that were in Cuyahoga Valley. Pamela Barnes is a ranger at Cuyahoga Valley National Park, situated between Cleveland and Akron. Long before this land became a park, it was farmed by generations of Ohioans. But eventually, the small family farms here fell into disrepair. 
The story of farming in this valley, it's part of what we're charged to protect and preserve. And so that was the story that we needed to figure out how are we going to bring that back to life. Today, these farms are thriving again. The park developed a plan to lease the properties to entrepreneurs who submitted applications. 11 are currently up and running. Locals can come and fill up on baskets of produce. And a weekly farmer's market has become a gathering point for families. We're gonna go this way, we're gonna go to the fig tunnel first, then we'll go up to- For many visitors, this is their first time on a farm. Biebenroth requires every member of his restaurant staff to come out and see the place for themselves. First course is the beets. It's a super wide peeled slice of beet along the base of the plate. Farming inside of a national park also comes with its own unique set of challenges. We can't take care of rodents and varmints the way we used to in a privately owned garden or farm. So we basically have to plant a little extra because raccoons and hawks, they're coming. Yeah. <laughs> You're not gonna stop them. For the Biebenroths, the biggest benefit of coming to live here in Cuyahoga Valley has been the opportunity to raise children on this land. It's both a playground and a classroom. Oh, come on, come on, nope. <laughs> the life lessons that they're gaining from being surrounded in a natural environment, like, this is their basis for their decision-making for the rest of their lives. Everything will emanate from this experience. Cultivating the perfect experience is something Biebenroth talks a lot about. It's possible guests may leave without ever realizing the beet mole underneath their pork loin came from a vegetable painstakingly grown in a national park. I don't really want people to appreciate the challenge that was overcome to get that to the plate. I want them to appreciate the experience and the texture and the flavor and the aroma and all the things that matter, right? Like, no one wants to eat the food from the sad chef, so. <laughs> I don't think that's something anyone eating Biebenroth's food needs to worry about. Some big orange ones over here. Right now, earning a living off the land. Cheers. Cheers. Your health. It's pretty clear he couldn't be happier. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It's a good carrot. Yeah. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll be back when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.